Well, hello everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with Drisha again uh, for the second part of this two-part series uh, on the nature of revelation. And we spent the entire time, really, in uh, our first class discussing the centrality of the um, idea that there is this thing called the heavenly Torah, the Torah that existed before the world was created. Um, and the question arises quite naturally, uh, well, how is that Torah um, related to the Torah that we have in our hands today, the Torah that was revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah that we celebrate receiving on the festival of Shavuot? And uh, in our first slide here, I want to summarize uh, some of the findings we came up with in our last class um, before I go on in this class to kind of outline, as I promised I would be, I promised this would be an opinionated series of classes, and actually the first class wasn't all that opinionated. The first class was laying out the contours of the problem. But my... Uh, my promise in this class is to be more controversial and to kind of put forward my own, um, my own opinionated uh, theory of revelation. What is a revelation? So um, what, what I'm going to introduce you slide before I get into my own opinionated account of uh, the revelation is something of a summary of our first class. Uh, so here we go to the first slide. Summary, overview. And here is a um, daunting looking table, uh, but uh, hopefully it will help us clarify what it was that I spoke about last time. So what I said was, okay, we have the Torah in heaven, the heavenly Torah, uh, and we ask, well, how is that heavenly Torah related to um, the earthly Torah, the Torah that we have um, in our hands today. And the first theory I call the Pentateuchal theory. I call, do you know what? The Torah in heaven is a letter-for-letter letter copy of the Torah that we have here on earth today. But that theory had to face a number of daunting problems. The first problem uh, was what I called fatalism. Because if the actions of Korach had been written down in God's uh, heavenly Torah long before Korach did it, uh, and the actions of uh, the daughters of Slothchad were written in the heavenly Torah long before uh, Slothchad uh, even had any daughters, indeed long before Slothchad was even born, um, then as soon as this information is revealed to Moshe and enters into our timeline, it seems as if the free will of Korach is uh, irredeemably um, compromised. Okay, let's see if this is any better. Can people hear me? Much better, thank uh, you. No worries. So here we go. Um, the Pentateuchal theory. The Pentateuchal theory says that the heavenly Torah and the earthly Torah are letter for letter identical. But we see one problem that this theory had to face, which was it seems to um, exacerbate the, the, the general philosophical problem of free will. For if uh, all of the actions of all of the people uh, in, in the Torah was written long before those people uh, did those deeds, then it seems as if their freedom is, is, is compromised. Uh, also, we have this worry about divine morality, if you remember from our last class. Um, there are some laws in the Torah that even the rabbis weren't so happy with. And the rabbis said, well, God doesn't really like these commandments per se, but he recognized that he had to make some sort of compromise with the society, age and culture to whom he was revealing his laws. Um, however, if the eternal Torah in heaven is identical to um, 
the Torah that we've given, then it seems as if God's ideal Torah includes these laws, not as a mere compromise, but like I said, as an ideal. So that would be a problem with the Pentateuchal theory. Uh, another problem with the Pentateuchal theory is that even some very um, respected Orthodox figures uh, among the Rishonim uh, and among the Acharonim uh, accepted that the exact text of the Chumash isn't completely and utterly trustworthy. There may be a letter here or there that isn't absolutely reliable. It's for that reason that the Khatam Sofer, not somebody known for being uh, ideologically compromising, but the Khatam Sofer said, you should not make a benediction, you should not make a bracha upon writing a Torah scroll, because we can't be 100% certain that every single letter uh, is uh, as it was when it was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. So to say, that our Torah is an exact copy of the heavenly one is something that um, is perhaps unrealistic uh, by those lights. Uh, likewise, the heavenly Torah was supposed to encapsulate all of the wisdom that was necessary for the creation of our physical universe. The Midrashim are quite clear. God, so to speak, consulted with the heavenly Torah in order to create the universe. So presumably the heavenly Torah includes all sorts of ideas about how to string electrons around an atom and the Higgs boson and all sorts of things um, that it would be unrealistic to think is encoded uh, in the Pentateuch. So that's a problem. Uh, a fifth problem uh, that arises, if you uh, follow the, the little ticks I'm giving here, is a theological heresy. The theological heresy of the Pentateuchal theory is this. Can you really believe that any text of a human language is able to encapsulate and include and grasp in its entirety the divine wisdom of Hashem that pre-existed the universe? It's a theological heresy to think that. Uh, but there are also some virtues that our theories could answer to. And uh, there is a rabbinic mode of exegesis, a rabbinic mode of learning law from text, according to which every single crown on a, on a particular letter in the Pentateuch is massively significant. Uh, um, heaps and heaps of laws are uh, included in uh, even the shapes of the letters of the Pentateuch. Uh, this would make sense if you believe that our Pentateuch is a faithful transcription of the heavenly text. So that's a virtue that this theory has. It explains something about Jewish practice. Fine. Uh, I tried to improve upon the Pentateuchal theory with what I called the Pentateuchal plus theory. The Pentateuchal plus theory says, ah, don't worry. The, the heavenly Torah contains more than the Pentateuch. But the extra material in the heavenly Torah made its way down to us in the oral Torah, in the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrash and all of the various works of the oral Torah. Now, this theory still faces the problems with fatalism. It might be able to escape the problem with divine morality because the heavenly Torah doesn't tell us that it's an ideal, for example, to take the female captive prisoner in the way that the book of Deuteronomy tells us, because the heavenly Torah includes the rabbinic explanations of those laws. So uh, the Pentateuchal plus theory escapes that problem, but it still has problems about the stability of the text. It still, well, maybe it escapes the, uh, the science problem, because maybe God did tell Moses everything there ever would be to know about nuclear physics. Maybe that was part of the revelation at Sinai. But then you get this new question. Well, why was all of that forgotten? Um, there, is a, there is a famous Gemara in Masechet Temura that talks about Joshua forgetting thousands of laws that Moshe taught him. Maybe that's where we lost all knowledge of the Higgs boson and, and, uh, and, and half-lives. But I doubt it. Uh, if you really believe that Moses was given an entire 
complete science, then it brings into question the integrity of the tradition. Why was that lost over time? So this is a new problem, a problem that wasn't faced by the Pentateuchal theory, but is placed, faced by the Pentateuchal plus theory. We still have the theological heresy because it's still uh, heretical, I would argue, to say that any collection of texts, doesn't matter how many texts there are. Okay, so we add to the Pentateuch, we add all the other books of the Bible, and we add the Mishnah, and we add the Talmud, and we add the Midrashim, and we add the commentaries, add as many texts as you like. The thought that some collection of human texts in a human language uh, could encapsulate all of God's wisdom is still heretical. Um, we still have this virtue with exegesis. I added the Pentateuchal plus plus theory, which says, well, maybe uh, God gave us everything we needed to know of the heavenly Torah. Everything that we needed to know of the heavenly Torah is encapsulated in the Pentateuch, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and all of the other texts of the rabbinic, so to speak, canon. Um, but there's more left over, stuff that will never be revealed to us. Well, still got the fatalism problem. You don't have the divine morality problem. You've still got the stability of the text problem. You escape the science in the Torah problem because God perhaps never revealed that stuff to us. You escape the problem of how did Moses forget all of the science? Because this, this problem about the integrity of the tradition, you escape that problem too because Moses was never told that stuff. You escape the theological heresy because uh, we don't believe that any collection of texts encapsulates everything that God knows. Um, and you still, uh, um, oh, so I should have deleted that. That tick shouldn't have come up. There isn't a science in the Torah problem here, but you do get the exegesis uh, virtue. Now, I had another view. We looked at another idea, which was to say, the Torah that was revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu was something like either the best approximation of the heavenly wisdom that could be put into human words. So it's not a copy, but it's more like an approximation. Or perhaps it was the best possible human unpacking of some divine kernel of wisdom that was given to us to unpack in partnership with God. This escapes the fatalism problem. This escapes the divine morality problem, the stability of the text problem, the science in the Torah problem, the integrity of the tradition problem. There's no theological heresy here, but there is what I might call a halachic heresy. The halachic heresy is this. Well, hold on a minute. If God didn't reveal every single word of the Bible to Moses, well, how do we know which bits are divine and which bits are human? How do we know um, which types of unpacking of this divine kernel of truth uh, are legitimate and authoritative and which are wrong? How do we know if our approximation towards heavenly wisdom is getting ever closer to the paradigm or ever further away? And these questions might shake our confidence in the entire edifice of rabbinic law. So you've swapped what I'm calling a theological heresy for a halachic heresy. You also can't easily explain these rabbinic modes of exegesis, which put so much weight upon the individual letter shapes of the Pentateuch. But you get a new virtue. And the new virtue is that Talmud Torah, learning Torah, becomes this cosmic partnership between God and the Jewish people, or God in the rabbis and the rabbis and it's in the midst of this partnership that the earthly Torah is created um, and I think that that's a virtue of this theory because the rabbis certainly do speak as if we are God's partners in so to speak the creation of Torah. Um, so uh, take a good look at that graph that chart because it turns out that there are problems here with all of the possible theories. And, you know, 
if I just started off by saying, oh, I think that the earthly Torah is imperfect and it's an approximation of a heavenly one, you, you would have got the matches out and burnt me at the stake for heresy. But what you can see by looking at this table here is that there actually isn't an easy way to escape heresy when thinking about the relationship between the earthly Torah and the heavenly Torah. Um, and actually, there's a lot of ticks above the gray line on this table and uh, fewer problems under the gray line. So these non-Pentateuchal theories, which think of the earthly Torah as something like an approximation or an unpacking of something divine, um, are perhaps less theologically problematic, less dogmatically suspect than you might have thought them to be had we not gone through the work of the previous class. Okay, so let me now go on. I'm going to now tell you what I think Revelation is. And, bef and before I do, I think we need to try and understand what a theory of Revelation um, should look like. And here's one thing I think a theory of Revelation needs to preserve if it wants to hold on to an air of authenticity. And it's this. It's the status of the Chumash. Um, Benjamin Summer, who is a conservative uh, Jew and a theologian um, and, and, and biblical scholar, um, he points something out, which he then goes on, in a sense, to dismiss. And I don't think he should have dismissed it. Um, and it's this. He says that the written Torah has the status in Judaism of something like a constitutional monarch. And this is what he means. Written Torah might be compared to a constitutional monarch. Hers are the honor and the ceremony. But we all know that the oral Torah as the prime minister holds all the power. And as an Englishman, um, uh, this, this uh, metaphor uh, spoke to me. And I think there's a lot to it. Here's, here's Benjamin Summer, the author of those words. Um, the idea is that the Pentateuch, the Chumash, functions like a written constitution in Judaism. The rabbis have a very, very wide um, permission, almost, to interpret the text. Some might say even to interpret, into interpret it into oblivion, but they're never allowed to say, oh, we disagree with that verse. They have to go the extra mile to find some interpretation. That's how we treat the Chumash. It might not be, uh, an, it might not be an absolute monarch, but it is a constitutional monarch. Hers uh, are the honor and the ceremony even if there's somehow a lot more power uh, behind the, the rabbis. And the thing is, I said Benjamin Summer goes on to ignore this. Well, in his conservative um, theology, he wants to say, especially in the light of, of biblical criticism, something we'll get onto later, he wants to say that it's kind of obvious to him that the Chumash has multiple authors and since he thinks it's obvious that the Chumash has multiple authors, we should treat it just like the rest of the Oral Torah. So the Oral, the oral Torah doesn't start with the Mishnah in Masechet Brachot, where you've got all these arguments between rabbis. It starts with Genesis 1.1. Uh, all of our texts are humanly constructed. They all contain multiple voices and they are all in dialogue with one another. Um, the process may be divinely inspired, but it's human from beginning to end. There is no written Torah, really, on Benjamin Summer's account. It's all oral Torah. And there's a sense in which uh, um, Benjamin Summer, perhaps unwittingly, is in cahoots um, with Art Scroll, the ultra-Orthodox publishing house. Why do I say this? Well, here's Michael Wishergrad. Michael Wishograd was a great Jewish philosopher who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and he was uh, very angry with Art Scroll publishers 
because in their Hebrew English Bible, they translate all of the Hebrew into English, apart from the Song of Songs, because the Song of Songs was deemed uh, too sexualized, too sexual, too uh, perhaps even vulgar or um, um, illicit um, to be translated into English. So instead of a translation into English, they just put uh, um, some rabbinic comment, you know, some rabbinic comments in English in, in place of the translation. Wishograd was very, very upset. And this is what he wrote. One can only wonder why the original text of the Song of Songs is read in synagogue on the Sabbath of Passover and not a midrashic interpretation of it. In fact, why is the original language of the Pentateuch read in the synagogue instead of a midrashic interpretation? Why not eliminate the Bible altogether and read the Mishnah in synagogue? Sometimes we are so eager to validate the divine origin of the oral Torah that we refuse to recognize any difference between the Torahs. And I say that um, that's, that's the compromise that Benjamin Summer in the end comes to. There is only an oral Torah. But I think that that is profound, and I agree with Wishograd, uh, against Benjamin Summer and against Art Scroll, that that is profoundly unrabbinic. And I told you I was going to be opinionated here. Benjamin Summer is an amazing scholar for whom I have tremendous respect. But I think there's something profoundly unrabbinic about not marking the difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah. Um, the rabbis did not order the writing of a Torah scroll with the teachings of the, the oral Torah inserted in the spaces of the written Torah. Such a Torah scroll would be unfit, even according to the rabbis, for use in the synagogue. So one kind of ground rule I want to lay down is I don't care right now how the Chumash was written, who wrote it, when it was written, what it is. But it certainly plays a function in Jewish law that's different to the oral Torah. It's different also to the rest of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but it certainly plays a different function in Jewish law to the Mishnah and the Talmud. And a theory of Jewish revelation needs to respect that distinction. That's one thing I want to say. Next, um, I want to talk about stenography. Um, Benjamin Summer uh, represents the orthodox theory of revelation um, often in terms of stenography. The court stenographer is the person that types down every single word said in court. And Moses was like a stenographer writing down every word that God said on Mount Sinai. Now I am going to pre present my theory of revelation as, whatever this means, orthodox. But I'm going to deny that an orthodox theory of the revelation needs to be stenographic. Um, so in order to do that, I want to share a few texts with you. First, in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 99a, uh, they quote a brighter, a Tanaitic source that says, Idach ki diber Hashem bazah. There's a verse in the book of Numbers that, that talks of a person who has despised the word of God. And the, the brighter here in, in Tractate Sanhedrin wants to say, well, who, who is this person who despises the word of God? And the rabbi is saying, It's the person who says that Torah isn't from heaven. And even if he says, And even if somebody says, oh, the entire Pentateuch, the entire Chumash comes from God apart from this verse, which Moshe said on his own accord, that counts as somebody who despises the word of the Lord. Even to say that Moses added a single verse of his own accord. Well, you could see why that text might lead you to think uh, that, that the rabbis, or at least some rabbis, had a stenographic account of uh, Revelation. But I would urge you to uh, pay attention to this notion of Mepi Atzma, of his own mouth. 
I would translate it idiomatically as of his own accord. And I think this is consistent with a broad range of theories of revelation. It might not be that God told Moses which words to write down. It might be that God told Moses a number of ideas or gave Moses a number of concepts or gave Moses a number of commandments and asked Moses to dress that up in his own words. That still wouldn't really be of his own accord. So, um, so there's that. But then you might throw at me um, the eighth principle of the 13 principles of faith of Maimonides. Uh, originally written in Arabic, here's a translation into English, because it's from his, his, his explanations on the Mishnah, uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, the 10th ten, the chapter. He says, as a principle of faith, the whole of the Torah came into Moses from before God in a manner which is metaphorically called speaking, but the real nature of that communication is unknown to everybody except to Moses, peace be upon him, to whom it came. In handing down the Torah, Moses was like a scribe writing from dictation, the whole of it, there should be an H there, uh, its chronicles, its, sorry, there should be a W there, its chronicles, its narratives, and its precepts. Um, wow, Moses was like a scribe writing from dictation. How can I squirm my way out of that one? The eighth principle of faith says that the revelation was stenographic. Moses was a scribe. But look at the earlier portion of the very same paragraph. Maimonides says, this is only a metaphor. The real mode of communication is beyond our understanding. Only Moses knows what happened up there. That's key. So I am not going to say anything that undermines uh, this principle of Maimonides. But that doesn't mean we have to adopt a stenographic account of the revelation. What we have to do is we have to respect the metaphor that it's as if God dictated each word to Moses. And I think my theory of revelation is going to respect uh, the spirit of that metaphor. Oh, stenography with, with no R, Tamika Bloomfield. Thank you. Um, okay. Another Gemara from Masechet Baba Batra. Ad kan hakadosh baruchu omer umosha omer vekotev. Mikan veelech hakadosh baruchu omer umosha kotev bedima. This is the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, who says that Moses wrote every verse of the Torah, and uh, the the mode in which he wrote it changed dramatically when he came to the verses that described his own death. Up until that point, says Rabbi Shimon, Moses, God spoke and Moses spoke and Moses wrote. From that point onwards, when Moses had to write about his own death, according to Rabbi Shimon, God spoke and Moses wrote in tears. Here's a text we didn't have time to get to uh, last time from the Nezer HaKodesh, who was uh, Rabbi Michal Yichiel, Ben Uziel, I think that's his name. He was a commentator on the Midrash. Um, and this is in his comments to Midrash Bereshit Rabba. But he quotes our Gemara from Baba Batra and he asks the question, why were both of them, the Holy and Blessed One and Moses speaking at the time of the writing down of the Torah? If you pay careful attention to this text in Baba Batra, it says God spoke, and Moses spoke and wrote. So you might think this is stenographic. But the Nezah Kodesh says, no, look carefully. Why were both of them speaking? If God was the one giving the dictation and Moses was the one taking it down. Why was Moses speaking too? And according to the Nezah Kodesh, it's because the Holy and Blessed One was speaking the written Torah. And Moses began to speak the oral Torah which was founded by him. And only then did he write, including allusions in his writing to that oral Torah that he grasped on his own. 
If so, it seems that this is why the text says, write down for yourself these commandments in Exodus 34, 27, rather than more simply write down these commandments. It said what it said, write down for yourself, so as to say, write in allusions to that which is yours, that oral Torah which you apprehended on your own. Now, this doesn't contradict what we're told in the tractate Sanhedrin, that Moses put nothing in there of his own accord, because God told him to do it. Nonetheless, what did God tell him to do? God told him to write his own understandings of the heavenly uh, uh, Torah uh, into the written Torah. Um, so, yes, the Pentateuch um, does need to have uh, a privileged status, but it's not clear to me that an orthodox theory of revelation has to root that privileged status in a stenographic, a stenographic account uh, of the genesis of the words of the Chumash. So let me get on to Mount Sinai and Marcel Duchamp. I spoke a little bit, bit about Duchamp last time, and I want to kind of... But before we get to Duchamp, um, let me share with you a midrash from Shemot Rabbah about this same verse when it says, write for yourself, that God tells Moses to write for yourself. At that point, says the midrash, the, the archangels, the ministering angels, started to say in front of the Holy One, blessed be he, you're giving Moses permission to write whatever he wants? So that he could say, you know, I gave you the Torah. I'm the one who gave it to you. God responded to them. God said, God forbid. God forbid. Sorry. God forbid that Moses would do such a thing. But even if he did, he's trusted. I think this is a very, very profound piece of Midrash. And how do we know that Moses is trusted? As it says in the book of uh, Numbers, chapter 12, verse 7. This is not so for, for Moses, my servant. Since in all of my house, he is trusted. Why do I think this is so profound? Well, for this reason. God tells the angels, don't worry, Moses won't add any words of his own. And even if he does, that's all right. What do you mean? <laughs> even if he does, that's all right. Well, I think I can explain it. You see here, this is a wine dryer. It's for putting wet bottles of wine on to let them dry something like a wine rack. Marcel Duchamp saw it, perhaps in a furniture shop, and he bought it. And then he put it in an art museum in what's called a, uh, uh, as, as part of what's called a ready-made sculpture. You know, he, he displayed it as a ready-made sculpture. His doing that gave that wine rack, which he didn't make, a whole load of significance that it hadn't had until that point. For example, I can't really imagine people walking around the, uh, the, the uh, furniture shop in which it was sold, um, saying what they said about it in the art gallery. I'll tell you what they said about it in the art gallery. At this time in his career, Duchamp was obsessed with the fact that he was childless. So they looked at this wine cellar, the critics, and they said, oh, how laughably phallic uh, this, wine, uh, this, this wine rack is waiting for wet bottles to be hung upon its prongs. I'm pretty sure nobody said that in the furniture shop, but they said that when it was in the art gallery. The idea is that even if you don't make a thing, if you appropriate that thing, you can, so to speak, make it yours. So if Moses added words of his own accord into the Bible, 
so be it. God's allowing it to be in the Bible will make those words divine, will make those words godly. So this is what I write in the seventh chapter of my book on the principles of Judaism. The tradition came to treat the Pentateuch as uniquely divine. But God knew that this would happen in the wake of Sinai. And yet he went away, he went ahead with the theophany anyway. The theophany is the revelation at Mount Sinai, that momentous moment that we uh, celebrate on the festival of Shavuot. He, God, knew that these attitudes would become deeply integral to the entire tradition. And yet he gave the tradition his seal of approval. And thus we can say that one, Moses did write it all down at God's behest, just as the stenographic model would suggest. Maybe that's true. Or two, you could say that the Pentateuchal text came to be in a somewhat less immediate manner. But God, nevertheless, foresaw its being attributed directly to him as a central element of the tradition moving forward. And he appropriated it. Once you give Sinai, once you give the event at Mount Sinai, this seal giving function, the choice between those two alternatives, the stenographic account or some other account, becomes much less significant. As long as God has appropriated this text, we should treat it as divine. So basically I'm saying that the revelation at Mount Sinai has a divine stamp of approval function for all of the traditions uh, that tumbled out of that moment, which leads to the obvious question. Maybe somebody else has already asked it. God speaks, somebody is, Nissan is asking God, uh, mouth to mouth, I will speak to him. Does it support the Pentateuchal theory? Maybe it does support the Pentateuchal theory, Nissan, that verse does. There are verses that make it sound as if God speaks mouth to mouth to Moses. But Maimonides would tell us that that's definitely a metaphor. Anyway, there is a problem here with my account. And here's the problem. To treat the Sinai theophany as granting a divine seal of approval to the traditions that came tumbling out of it is to ignore the fact that many competing traditions can be described as tumbling out of that one event. Presumably, God can't have been endorsing them all, given their, given their incompatibility. Was God endorsing Christianity and Islam, which also believe in Mount Sinai? Was he endorsing uh, every single shade of orthodoxy and conservative Judaism and reform Judaism, even though, they, even though they all argue against one another, since they all came out of Sinai? Is an orthodox theory of revelation going to be satisfied with that consequence? Probably not. So let me carry on. There's a lot of text on this page, I'm sorry to say, um, but I hope uh, you'll agree it's worth our while. Um, I want to start with the words of Tamar Ross, um, a contemporary scholar of Jewish thought. She wrote in her Expanding the Palace of Torah, um, Expanding the Palace of the Torah, she wrote the following words. Within the interpretative community most committed to their study and practice, there exists something that you might call a picture or a form of life. It is those pictures and forms of, of life generated by the interpretative community within the Jewish nation, i.e. by those most committed to the... Um, oh, somebody said, not necessarily a problem at all, Dr. Liebens, because of Elu Ve'elu Develu Kim Chaim. Um, we can allow God to have sanctioned uh, lots of conflicting traditions and religions. Well, I agree with you, it's not necessarily a problem. I find it a problem. Uh, I don't believe that contradictions can be true. And I have a slightly different understanding of Eilu Ve'elu Develu Kim Chaim, the notion that both these and these are the words of the uh, living God. Uh, although I understand there are different ways one could go. And you didn't say other religions, okay, you said other schools within Judaism. Even that, I think, goes further than I would be willing to go. And I said that this was going to be opinionated. But, but I uh, take your point, and you'll see what I do with that, I think, later on. Um, but tomorrow, basically, without reading the text, let me make the point. She says something like this. The Sinai event was the event in the life of a particular nation. 
and it gave birth to an interpretative community that sit and toil over the text. And that interpretative community comes up with a picture of life or a form of life. And it is those pictures and forms of life generated by the interpretative community within the Jewish nation, i.e. by those most committed to the study and practice of Judaism, that God can be said to be endorsing provisionally and not for all time because this is a process that evolves, but for each generation in its time as the interpretative tradition continues to generate new pictures and new forms of life, as it evolves towards its heavenly paradigm. The earthly Torah is a work in progress. But what was God giving a seal of approval to? To a series of evolving pictures or forms of life within one particular nation, the nation to whom this event occurred. And not to just anyone in that nation, but to the community of interpreters. And not just to any interpreters, but to those who are committed to its study and practice. And indeed, the rabbis would often appeal to the practices of committed jury in order to resolve rabbinic disputes. Furthermore, popular custom, minhag, has an authoritative status in Jewish law. Moreover, the rabbis are not permitted to create edicts that the religious community will not accept. So there's some status that the, the, the committed among Am Yisrael, among the Jewish people, have. And it's the modes of life, the forms of life, the pictures of life that emerge within that community in conversation with texts that, that I am suggesting Sinai gives a provisional, evolving stamp of approval to. Um, Rabbi Sachs um, writes... In, um, can't remember the name right now, it's a book from 1993, uh, it says, a reading of the history of the Jews at times of crisis, the Babylonian exile, the Maccabean revolt, the destruction of the Second Temple, 15th century Spain, suggests that the pattern of Jewry's continuity is determined at such moments by its most intensely religious members. So, the idea isn't that anything goes. The idea is that those modes of life, those forms of life, those pictures of life that emerge within the community of the committed and perhaps the most committed are the ones that uh, receive the stamp of approval. Um, Benjamin Summer made a point, uh, another point uh, with which I agree. Uh, he says the following, in the year uh, 50 CE, there was no criterion that allowed one to say which forms of Judaism were the right ones. On a purely theoretical level, nobody could prove that the traditions of the Pharisees and the earliest rabbis were Torah, while the writings of the Qumran sect and the teachings of the Sadducees were not, because it takes a while for pictures of life, forms of life, modes of living to emerge and become a consensus among the Jewish people. Um, and before that happens, there's often lively debate, a furnace of debate through these uh, uh, different positions um, are, are um, tested. But, says Benjamin Summer, by the year 600, it had become clear that this was the case. The Qumran sect is not Torah. The Pharisees and the rabbis are. There is no conclusive way to explain by the philosopher Philo's first century attempt to fuse Plato and Judaism did not become Torah, whereas Maimonides' 12th century attempt to fuse Aristotle and Judaism did. So I agree with him. I think that sometimes while you're living in the midst of a debate in the Jewish people, you can't know which side of that debate is going to ultimately win and be adopted going forward. And I think that if you're living in such a time vis-a-vis -vis such an issue, that's when we say, Elu ve'elu divri elokim chayim, both these and these are the words of the living God. It's not that anything that any rabbi ever says, it's those views which are held among the most deeply committed uh, of Jews in conversation with our textual tradition, they all have a provisional seal of approval from God. Sometimes 
there's conflict within uh, um, the various committed communities. Uh, and when such conflict emerges, then we can say, Elu ve'elu divrelokim chayim, until it gets sorted out. Um, and I suppose an orthodox thinker like me is going to say that if you are looking for community communities most committed to living a life in accordance with the texts, um, you are overwhelmingly going to find yourself looking at orthodox communities, which isn't to say, please don't misinterpret me, that there are not very sincerely religious non-orthodox Jews, very sincerely religious, reform, conservative, and all sorts of Jews. But I think sociologically, it's probably a fact that um, the halachically observant in non-orthodox communities are overwhelmingly clergy, rabbis, um, clergy serving a perhaps halachically apathetic laity. Whereas there are many orthodox communities where the entire community is uh, um, halachically committed. So I suppose this is where the kind of um, sectarian sounding orthodoxy of my theory uh, becomes apparent. On the other hand, um, that it doesn't rule out the notion that there are uh, some deeply committed communities uh, that are not orthodox. And it also allows for the notion, in fact, it insists upon the notion that what the orthodox communities have in their hands today is not the final truth with a capital T, but a work in progress. Um, so there is something here that I think is authentically orthodox, but hopefully also something that is open-minded and recognizes uh, that everybody in the Jewish world, uh, in any denomination, uh, plays a role in the, the evolution of, of Jewish thought. And what's more, nobody has a monopoly on religious truth. Um, so it's kind of what you might hope to call open-minded orthodoxy, I hope. You, asked, you might ask, is this orthodox at all? Uh, I can skip this slide because I basically made the points that I wanted to make here. Uh, it, uh, um, but you can read it in your own time. Um, I will upload the PDF at some point. What I want to do very, very quickly, I think you have a sense of the theory of revelation that I'm putting forward. Second, there's something in the chat box. Um, so well, somebody asked me, in your theory, approximately what percentage do you think was stenographic and what percentage was added by Moses? To me, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter if it was Moses. What matters is that God appropriated it, the entire Pentateuch, and therefore we should treat it as divine. It's either entirely stenographic or entirely human, but as long as God's appropriated every single letter of it, we should treat it as if it's entirely divine. So what I'm gonna get on to quickly, I've only got 10 minutes, I'm gonna rush through this. So I wanna show you how this theory of revelation can deal with a number of problems that, that emerge from outside of the Jewish tradition. So uh, the first um, is, The first is uh, non-Jewish continuations of Sinai. How are we gonna deal with them? The church and the mosque there in this picture of Beirut. So first of all, I'm gonna say, look, the revelation was an event in the life of a nation, giving a seal of approval to the evolving forms of life among the faithful of that nation. So um, unless all of the Jewish nation or the most committed to Sinai among the Jewish nation were to adopt Christianity or Islam, uh, in response to uh, Sinai, uh, these uh, uh, competing traditions do not receive any sort of warrant from my theory of revelation, which isn't to say that they can't have their own theory of revelation, that's fine. Um, I also want to point out that the authority of Moses and all future prophets stems from Sinai. Maimonides makes clear it's because we heard God speak to Moses at Sinai that we knew for sure that he was a prophet. And there was never um, an experience like that in the history of humanity since, according to the Jewish picture. Um, if a future prophet arises, 
it doesn't matter what miracles they do, they have no authority because all prophets after Sinai get their authority from Sinai. The Torah says one day there will be prophets and they might do miracles. And if they do miracles, we should uh, listen to them. But only if what they tell us to do is in accord with the Bible. In fact, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 13 that there will be false prophets who even perform miracles. They are sent to test us. If they establish a new religion, they're certainly to be regarded as false. Unless, and this is added by Yosef Albo in his book, Sefer e Karim, he says, well, if the Messiah comes down and can conjure a second Sinai-like experience, an experience where the entire people hear God speak, then maybe we could uh, edit the laws of the Torah. But short of a second Sinai-like experience, we are not allowed to follow prophets who found new religions. So that's one external problem. Second external problem, biblical criticism. Um, here's a picture of Wellhausen. Many, many uh, scholars of the Bible are of the opinion that the Chumash had multiple authors and they think they can use scientific methods to uncover different layers of the text, uh, demolishing once and for good the notion that the Torah, the Chumash, is divine. But let me just point out to you that, like most sciences, biblical criticism adopts something that you could call methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism is the view that you don't appeal to God when you try to explain science. And it's a really good idea. When you want to explain thunder and lightning, don't say it's God having some kind of furniture um, rearrangement in the heavens. Keep God out of the laboratory, because only if you do that will scientific explanation go as far as it can. And I think that is a, uh, a worthy... Um, I oh, Ozzy Orbach asks, don't Christians claim that the resurrection is a Sinai-like experience? Well, they claim that it's a miracle and they claim that it proves that Jesus was the Messiah. But as I argue, it's not a Sinai-like experience. Moses said there will be false prophets who do miracles. Why not false prophets who can, can rise from the dead? A Sinai-like experience is when the entire nation hears God speaking. Um, and anything short of that uh, could not give sanction to a new religion, for the Jews at least. Uh, but anyway, methodological naturalism is your idea. Keep God out of the laboratory. I think it's a good idea. But it's not a good idea if the question you are asking is, did God write the Bible? If that's your question and you say, yes, but we have to keep God out of the laboratory, so to speak, then obviously you'll find that God wasn't the author because you've prejudiced the entire discipline right from the beginning. As James Kugel, a noted biblical scholar himself, says what truly separates uh, these two groups of, um, yes, in the theory of divine appropriation, yes, the Pentateuch is holier than the prophets and the Ketuvim. God appropriated the, the Pentateuch in a different way to the way he appropriated the rest of the writings of the Bible. Anyway, what James Kugel says is what truly separates these two groups of interpreters is the set of unwritten instructions that guide them in reading the biblical text. The biblical critics bring to the table an assumption that God isn't involved. The rabbis bring to the table an assumption that God is evolved, says uh, is involved. According to Kugel, it is thanks to this crucial difference in assumptions that these two groups can read exactly the same words and perceive two quite different messages. The contemporary analytical philosopher Alvin Plantinga writes the following, therefore, about biblical criticism. We can imagine a renegade group of whimsical physicists proposing to reconstruct physics by refusing to use any beliefs that come from memory, say, or perhaps memory of anything more than one minute ago. Perhaps you could try and do a science, you could make a science like this, where we're not allowed to use the memory of anything uh, uh, further than five minutes ago. But it would be a poor, paltry, truncated, trifling thing. And now suppose that, say, 
Newton's law or special relativity turned out to be dubious and unconfirmed from this point of view. That would presumably give little pause to more traditional physicists. The truncated physics could hardly call into question the physics of the fuller variety. So says Alvin Plantinga, if biblical critis critics on the assumption that God isn't involved, find lots and lots of human authors, that shouldn't convince us that God wasn't involved. That would be like physicists who um, operate on the assumption that memory can't be trusted, um, saying that we no longer use Newton's laws. Um, so I really think that just because biblical criticism is very, very popular in some uh, Bible departments and Jewish studies departments, it doesn't necessarily mean that people like me working in philosophy departments uh, need to be too worried by their findings. But perhaps more interestingly is that our theory of revelation, the one I've been proposing today, is compatible with even the most threatening conclusions of biblical criticism. Give the Bible, the Pentateuch, as many human authors as you like, along as many different periods as you like. So long as God at Sinai foresaw that this would be adopted by the faithful of the Jewish community, God was giving it a stamp of approval. God was saying, yes, I do want you to treat this text in the way that you're going to come to treat this text. And therefore he appropriated it. So my theory of revelation is consistent with even the most threatening types of biblical criticism, even though I personally am not all that moved by biblical criticism. There are archeological concerns too. And I would just ask you to think about what has archeology span actually disproven? It's worth um, uh, looking more into, into uh, the data there. But also you need to ask what genre is the Torah? I don't think the Bible was ever an attempt at natural history. So even if God wrote it word for word, so long as it wasn't a book of natural history, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should trust that its description of the creation of the world or the migrations of people or whatever is exactly historically accurate. It depends entirely on what genre the Bible is or what genres uh, the Bible includes. Um, uh, Yehuda Gelman writes, in Hasidic literature, we all have an Adam and Eve inside of us, defying God and then exiled. We all are Abraham, called to leave our natural state and go to a faraway place where we will be blessed. We all have a Moses and a Pharaoh within us, confronting one another time and again until the time of personal redemption from the narrow confines of self-absorption. We each have within us the capacity to stand at Sinai and receive the Torah anew. I would add one sentence. The Torah was always much more than a history book and perhaps never intended as a history book. In fact, I actually think it's anachronistic to think of the Torah as a history book because, Torah, because history as a genre doesn't really uh, stretch back further than Herodotus and Thucydides. Thucydides. Um, the Torah is older than the genre of natural history. Um, but what's perhaps more important is on our theory, all that needs to have occurred was the revelation at Sinai, perhaps even to a smaller nation than described in the text. So long as the entire nation of Israel, however small it may be at that time, had heard God spoke and they passed that memory down and that event of God speaking uh, functions as a stamp of approval to everything that comes later than my theory of revelations golden. Um, there's also the ethical challenge. What about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Do we really believe that that old stuff uh, uh, represents God's eternal wisdom? Summer cannot, Benjamin Summer, cannot bring himself to believe in a God who sanctions genocide. But I just want you to note that our theory of the revelation makes no such claim about God. It doesn't say that God sanctions genocide or slavery, or all of the things that you might not like about the Bible. Rather, it claims that God was willing to be viewed as endorsing genocide in ancient times as he sought to guide a barbaric world towards the light. Rabbinic Judaism would no longer sanction genocide, and God knew that we would get there. To, to allow yourself to be viewed in such a way is pretty horrifying, 
but perhaps it's no more horrifying than the human situation to which God was addressing himself, to which this process was addressed uh, uh, with the aim of improving our ethical lot. Uh, that's basically the end. I just have one more thing to read you, and I realize I'm already one minute over time, but it, it's important to me to read this to you because it is the conclusion. Um, this is uh, my principle of revelation. I'll read it to you, and it's the end. At an event at Sinai, and, and that's all that had to happen, and that's what the festival of Shavuot is about, this event. At an event at Sinai, God gave an endorsement to a religious tradition that would evolve among the nation of Israel. That tradition would come to view the Pentateuch as a sacred written constitution, never to be amended, at least not without a second Sinai-like event. His endorsement demands that today we should relate to the Pentateuch as if it were dictated word for word by God to man, which perhaps it really was. Whether or not this is an historically accurate account of the genesis of the Pentateuch, which perhaps it really is, God foresaw that the religious tradition stemming from Sinai would, at least, evolve to endorse this attitude as central to its very identity. Accordingly, even God didn't write the Pentateuch word for word, even if he didn't, which he may well have done. It is as if God has now appropriated the text of the Pentateuch as his own by his very appearance at Sinai. The Pentateuchal text is only one part of the Torah, that which is fixed is the words, not their interpretation. God also endorsed at Sinai the process of evolving traditions and interpretations that the faithful of Israel would develop over time, including their relationship with other books of the Bible. There may even be wrong turns from time to time, but guided by Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, the general trajectory is such that the unfolding content of the revelation through the religiously observant communities of the Jewish people bring the content of the earthly Torah ever closer to the content of the heavenly Torah. And I would argue that this theory of revolution is rooted in the Bible, the Midrash, the Mishnah, the Talmud, Hasidic thought, and it wasn't written as a response to biblical criticism or ethical concerns or, or archaeological concerns. And yet it actually has robust responses to those concerns, to what I have called the external problems with the revelation. All of this is covered at more length in chapter seven of my book, The Principles of Judaism, out next month with Oxford University Press and available for pre-order you can see my website thank you so much everybody i'm sorry it was rushed but i had a lot to to try and fit in um i hope that people enjoyed this um and that my opinionated um um style uh wasn't off-putting for people because certainly i recognize that um a theory of revelation should make room for the fact that nobody has a monopoly on God's wisdom, on the heavenly Torah, to which we uh, can only hope to approximate. Thank you very much, and a Chag Sameach for Shavuot when it comes. Thank you so much, everyone. And a recording of this class will be posted on the Drisha website, www.drisha.org, in the coming days, and the online library, audio library. Thanks very much for coming, and thank you thank very you. much, Dr. Rubin. I'll just respond to um, um, what... Ozzy asks about how is this different from what Tamar Ross is saying. I think my theory of revelation is very, very similar to Tamar Ross, although her view over time has become more and more postmodern. Um, and what that means is she's less and less concerned with whether or not um, um, there was, in fact, an event at Sinai. And she is less and less uh, um, committed, I suppose, to the notion that there is such a thing as an objective reality to which we um, approximate um, in our kind of religious and, and otherwise study. So there is some kind of small methodological um, differences between Tamar and, and Professor Ross and myself, uh, but my theory of revelation is actually very similar to hers. Um, um, 
although perhaps I've done some more work to root it in uh, different sources to the sources that she's working with. And with response to uh, uh, Ozzy uh, Orbach, how can God give the impression of wrongdoing? Well, it might be that um, the only way to bring humanity along their ethical journey is sometimes to misrepresent yourself. And that might be a cost that God is willing to pay. I can't speak for God. I don't know. I'm, I am humbly theorizing. Um, but it would be a consequence of my view that, yes, there were times in history when God was willing to misrepresent himself um, in order to nudge us in the right direction um, at a speed with which we could at which we could actually travel. OK, I am going to go. I hope that's that, that at least um, partially answers your questions. Thank you again. And if there are any other questions, please feel free to email Drisha at inquiry at drisha.org and we'll happily relay them um, on your behalf. Thank you. Thank you, you so again. Much. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye.